All right, so Matthew chapter 2. Um, he, here's what's happening. Uh, obviously, Jesus was born in Bethlehem, right? We, we know that. We, we looked at that over the last few weeks. Um, and, and chapter 2 starts after that sometime. Now, we don't know how long it took uh, for the story in chapter 2 to come about. There's all kinds of theories. This is actually probably one of the most... Uh, I, I guess, speculative passages that people have, have taken and we've just tried to like jam interpretations into it. I think we need to acknowledge that as we read, read through this, we are given the information we need to know and speculating uh, may have a place, but ultimately that's not the, the point. And I want to take us back to the point. Um, I will talk a little bit about obviously the context here and what we think is happening but there's just a lot we don't know. So I just want to say that on the front end. But what the first thing we don't know is how long this took place after Jesus was born. All we're told in verse 1 is now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king. That's the, that's the context. That's the setting. This is after Jesus was born. Was it a year after he was born? Was it a couple of months after he was born? There's a ton of speculation, but we just know that this happened after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, and it took place in the days of Herod the king. Now, Herod, if you're not familiar with Herod, Herod was a a pseudo-king. He was actually kind of a fake king. Um, Basically, what was happening in this is that the Romans uh, basically owned Israel. They had come in militarily, defeated them, took them over. Uh, So there's an emperor in Rome who's actually in charge, but Rome was pretty good at conquering people. That's why they became an empire that took most of the world, uh, at least the known world at that time. Um, But what they did was they would try to appease the people that they conquered, right? They'd conquer them and then they tried to appease them. And one of the ways that they'd appease people is by establishing a local leader ruler from among them. And and here in Herod's case, he was a Jewish man who had kind of a long dynasty. Uh, there were a lot of Herods. Um, and, and yet the emperor in Rome decided, okay, we'll put Herod over as king of the Jews. But he really wasn't a king in the sense that he had any real authority. He was sort of a figurehead. Um, but he was very psychotic um, and also very paranoid, as we'll, we'll see. We'll get a glimpse of that a little bit today, although we won't get into too much of it. If you read the whole of chapter two, you'll see how crazy this man is. But he doesn't have any real genuine power. Uh, but what he does have, he's trying to cling on to really, really hard. Uh, and so here we see Herod. He's, he's uh, the king, so, so-called king at this time in Jerusalem. And here's what it says. It says, Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. All right, so here's another perplexing part of this story is now we have these wise men showing up to Jerusalem, talking to King Herod, asking him where the king of the Jews was was born because they saw a star in the east and when they saw the star, they came to worship this king. There's a lot wrapped into this, right? There, first of all, we see that Herod becomes a very 
paranoid mess because he's the king of the Jews, supposedly, right? And, and now he's being told that there's another king being born and he doesn't want any rivals. That's a whole part of the story. But, um, but what's perplexing is who are these wise men? That, that word can be, in some translations, choose to use the phrase magi. Um, basically, they're some kind of magicians or, or sorcerers. It's kind of weird, actually, right, that we're reading about these guys who are coming from the east. So we don't know much about them, right? We just don't. We're given very little information. We're told they were wise men or magi, which is a shortening of the word magician, um, from the east. So that's led to a lot of speculation, right? Did they come from somewhere in uh, the oriental areas of the world? Uh, uh, did they come from China or India? Um, I don't think so. That's not, that's not my view, at least. It doesn't really matter at the end of the day. Um, but what we see is that there are these guys who see a star. They, they interpret that star correctly, as the sign that the king of the Jews would be born. And then they travel many hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of miles to get to Jerusalem to see him. So I think I just want to start by trying to answer the question, who are these wise men? It seems so out of left field. It seems so bizarre that these foreign guys would come to Israel to, to worship a king that had just been born and, and then ask where he is and all these things. So I think, I think the closest answer we have in the scriptures to who these guys are can be found in Daniel uh, chapter 2, which we read a portion of Daniel 2 as our call to worship. But um, I just want to kind of take us to that passage and, and look at pr- uh, at least a theory, and that's what it is. It's a theory as to who these guys may have been. Um, when you get to Jan- Daniel chapter 2, here's what's happening. I'm just going to summarize it because it's a long chapter. But King Nebuchadnezzar is the king of Babylon. And he has this dream and it freaks him out. And so he calls together all of these, these people uh, that, that he thinks can help him. Verse 2 says, The king commanded that the magicians, magi, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dream. All right, so he has a dream. It scares him. It's a nightmare. He brings all of his magicians and sorcerers and enchanters to come and tell him what it means. But here's the thing. As you read the story, it's interesting. Nebuchadnezzar does not tell them what the dream was. He refuses. They come in and they say, okay, tell us what the dream was and we'll tell you what it means. And Nebuchadnezzar, in kind of a shrewd way, says, no, you're just going to make something up. Like, you're just going to pretend to know what it means. Like, if you know, then tell me what the dream was and then tell me what it means. So he, may, he puts them on the spot and says, you have to tell me what the dream means. And of course, they can't, right? So they're hemming and hawing and kind of going, well, but you need to kind of tell, you need to give us a hint, you know. Uh, they can't figure it out because they're all make-believe. Like, they're just, they're playing. They're just playing around. These guys are not truly knowledgeable people. They are just, you know, doing whatever traditional Babylonian things. So at the end of the story, or towards the end of the story, Nebuchadnezzar basically says, okay, all the wise men in, in Babylon are going to be killed now. Because <laughs> again, these kings were psychotic, right? So he's like, all right, we're going to kill them all. 
And he sends this guy, Arioch, uh, out to go kill everybody, all these wise men. He says in uh, verse uh, 18 that, um, that God told him that his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men in Babylon. Okay, so all the wise men in Babylon, which is this group of magicians and sorcerers and enchanters, they're all called the wise men. They're all put, like basically threatened to die. And Daniel kind of stops the whole thing and goes, wait, what's happening? <clears throat> Why are you killing all these wise men? Uh, and the guy explains what's happening. And Daniel says, okay, oh, okay, I'll just go and tell Nebuchadnezzar what the dream means. And so he goes. He goes and he tells the king what the dream was because God gave him the knowledge. And, and then he tells him what it means. And this made Dan, uh, Nebuchadnezzar super happy. And at the end of the chapter in verse 46, it says, King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded him, uh, commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, truly your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords. Uh, and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. And it says that the king gave Daniel high honors, many great gifts, made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon, and here's the key, and chief prefect over all the wise men in Babylon. So Daniel, through the Lord's help, knows what this dream means, and this makes Nebuchadnezzar so happy that he gives him the position of a governor and puts him overseeing as a prefect, as the leader of all of these wise men in Babylon. So it's interesting because Babylon was directly east of Israel. It's in what is modern-day Iraq. And, and if you just look at a map and you find Israel and you go straight east, there's, there's Iraq. Okay, that's where Babylon would have been in, it, in its heyday. Of course, by the time of Jesus, that nation was gone. They had actually been taken over by the Persians not long after Daniel's life. And so there was a whole bunch of turnover and change, but, but it's due east, which is, in, which is interesting. So I think the best guess, again, it's just a guess because the Bible doesn't directly tell us who these guys are. It seems likely, though, that these are men who had been given knowledge that had been passed down for generations from Daniel, that Daniel was probably preparing these Babylonian magicians and sorcerers to know what to look for to see the true king be born. And this is hundreds of years after Daniel lived, probably six or seven hundred years. And yet here you have a group of guys from, from what would have been Babylon who evidently had the, the knowledge passed down to them that when they saw the star, notice that they call it in verse, back in chapter 2, verse uh, 2, they said, we saw his star. And so Daniel must have given them some, something that we're not privy to, but uh, gave, him, gave them information to know what to look for and, and then to ultimately follow that star to Jerusalem and come to meet the king. These, these guys really, it's hard to know how much they understood, right? It's hard to know how much they really got about this and what it meant, but but this is an amazing story. It's a truly amazing story because here's these guys, probably from what is modern-day Iraq. I'm not sure what nation would have been 
been there at this time in history when Christ was born, but here they're coming hundreds and hundreds of miles to Israel to see the king of the Jews because they saw his star. So look at verse 3. It says, When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all, the, all of Jerusalem with him. And so assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and this is from Micah uh, chapter 5, uh, where Ray took us last week, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So, so what's happening is that Herod has no idea where the, where the Christ would be born. So he brings together the scribes and the, and the uh, experts of the Bible at that time and asks them, where is this? Where is he, he going to be born? And so they pull out their Old Testament and they go, okay, this is where he's going to be born, Bethlehem. Now, it's, it's interesting to note here that Bethlehem is only a five-mile walk, roughly five, six-mile walk from from Jerusalem, where Herod is, where all these scribes are. And yet none of them decide to go and see what, what all this is about. They just, verse 7, Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them when the star had appeared. And then he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Now we know from the rest of this passage that this is a trick, Herod's just saying this to, to try to find out where this child is so he can kill the child because he doesn't want a rival king. But it's, it's just amazing that the scribes and these people who are experts of the law had no interest in walking five miles to Jerusalem to see if Jesus would be born there. It's really weird. And yet you have these, these th- I, we don't know if there's three of them, but he just says wise men, so it could be two guys, it could be 20 guys, we have no idea. We usually think of them as three wise men because they gave three gifts to Jesus. And so, I mean, it is feasible that they might all have gone in halvesies with the gifts and, you know, there might have been more than three of them. It might have been that there were two and they just decided to bring three gifts, right? It doesn't matter. At the end of the day, there's more than one of these guys and they are, we can call them three wise men for the sake of simplicity. So these three guys, they have come hundreds of miles already and then are like, okay, Bethlehem. So they, so they start going to Bethlehem because they've come this far. They're here to see this king and they want to finish it up. And so here's what happens. Verse 9, after listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, this is, this is amazing. The star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. So here's what we're told, right? That, that this star, the same star that they saw in the east when they first started their journey, does, somehow appeared again, and this time actually led them directly to the house where Jesus was. That's, that's perplexing, right? Like, we, we can read these things and go, how in the world does that happen? And, and to, be, to be honest, there's all kinds of theories. 
And I was a little like overwhelmed in some ways with all these theories and ideas and all these people trying to make sense of this. Like how does a star lead people to something? Like it, it's just a very interesting thing. But then I came across this, this uh, little devotional by John Piper and I thought it was so helpful. It was like a breath of fresh air to me. So I'm going to read it to you as well because I think it's, it's helpful as we, as we engage in these kind of texts that just don't give us a lot of detail, like in terms of how things happened. Piper's got a great kind of look at this. And here's what he says. He says, over and over, the Bible baffles our curiosity about how certain things happened. He says, how did this star get the Magi from the east to Jerusalem? It does not say that it led them there or went before them on the way. It only says they saw it in the east and they came to Jerusalem. But how did the star then go before them in the little five-mile walk from Jerusalem to Bethlehem, as Matthew 2.9 says it did? How did a star rest over the place where the child was? Get ready for his answer. The answer is we do not know. There are numerous efforts to explain it, in terms of conjunctions of planets or comets or supernovas or miraculous lights. We just don't know. And here's what he says. I love this. He says, I want to exhort you not to become preoccupied, not to become fixated on theories that are only tentative in the end and have very little spiritual significance. I risk a generalization to warn you, Piper says, People who are exercised and preoccupied with such things like how the star worked or how the Red Sea split or how the manna fell or how Jonah survived the fish and how the moon turns to blood are generally people who have what I call a mentality for the marginal. You often do not see in them deep cherishing of the great things of the gospel, the holiness of God, the ugliness of sin, the helplessness of mankind, the death of Christ, the justification, doctrine of justification by faith alone, the sanctifying work of the Spirit, the glory of Christ's return, and the final judgment. They always seem to be ta- taking you down a sidetrack with some new article or book that they're excited about dealing with something marginal. And there's very little rejoicing over the great central realities. But what is plain concerning the matter of the star is that it's doing something it cannot do on its own. It's guiding Magi to the Son of God to worship him. I thought that was so helpful. I really did, because I think we, we can. We can read these stories and just go, how did that happen? And we just start to spin all these things. And, you know, kind of, have you ever seen that meme of, the guy who's got the board behind him with thousands of red, you know, things, and he's just like frantic and crazy. That's, that's how most people are in, when they're trying to figure all this out. It's just craziness. And the point is not to figure out how, how all this worked. The point is that Jesus did this, the Lord did this to get these men to him and to worship him. And so fundamentally, this portion of the story is included in the birth of Christ. And in fact, this is the only place where we're told about the wise men. Luke doesn't talk about the wise men. They're never mentioned again in any other passage of the Bible. But they're here to show us something. 
Matthew includes them in his account of the birth of Christ. And I, I think it's because he's writing predominantly to a Jewish audience. He's trying to convince the Jewish people that Jesus is their Messiah. But one of the ways that he intends to do this is to show that the promise of God that he made to Abraham and Isaac is actually coming true in Jesus. That when, when God promised Abraham and Isaac that their offspring would bless the nations, that's what we're seeing happen in real time in this story. The nations are coming to worship him. And yet it's amazing that these, these men would have traveled hundreds of miles over months to get from Iraq to Israel by foot or by horseback. And, and, and yet no one in Israel is interested, seemingly, of this, of this amazing thing that God has done, except for these lowly shepherds in, in a field outside Bethlehem. Nobody else comes to see him from Israel at that time. And it, it kind of goes back to what John tells us in John chapter one, that Jesus came to his own people and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And here you have these men that are from the nations, right? Babylon was kind of a, a, a sort of, it's, it's kind of become a junk drawer term for all the nations and particularly the godless ones, right? It's, it's sort of a personification of evil, the, the Babylon as it's used in the Bible. And it was an evil nation. And yet God put Daniel in that nation during the exile to bring the light of Christ, just the, the flicker of it, right? Daniel didn't even know the fullness of all this, but he gave Daniel enough to know to presumably tell these wise men that he just saved all their lives and was put in charge of them, right? Presumably tells them what they need to look for. And that information was passed down for centuries until these guys show up. It is showing on display the reality that the weary world rejoices. The world, not just a nation. The world gets to rejoice in this, and these men are representatives of that. And here they are. It says that they, the star leads them to where the child was. In verse 10, it says, when the star, when they saw the star, look at this, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. These guys were over the moon with excitement over seeing this star and finding the child that they came to worship. Remember that. That's why they're here, to worship him. It's interesting because their understanding is actually far more accurate, in a sense, than even the Jewish leaders the Jewish leaders of, their, of that day believed the Messiah wasn't going to be God. They believed he was going to be a military political leader who would free them from their oppression. They didn't understand. That's why the Pharisees kept trying to kill Jesus when he kept calling himself God. He called himself God over and over again and they, every time they wanted to kill him. Because in, in their mind, that just wasn't a category. But here you have these men from Babylon or somewhere in the east who understand at least enough to know that this king isn't just a regular old political king, but he's one to be worshipped. 
And so they see the star, they find the house, and verse 11, going into the house, they saw the child with his mother, Mary, and they fell down and worshipped him. They didn't worship Mary. They didn't worship Joseph. They worshipped him. And so here they are. They've traveled hundreds of miles over many months. We don't know how long it took them to get there. Jesus was no longer in the stable. He's in a house, still in Bethlehem, which tells me it's probably not like years later. Some people have speculated that it was a couple years later. I find that very hard to believe because Mary and Joseph didn't live in Bethlehem. They lived in Nazareth. They came to Bethlehem to, to register for the census, right? They had to go there to, because they didn't have the internet and click a couple buttons and tell people how many people lived in their house. They had to go about 70 miles to Joseph's hometown to register. But I, I find it hard to believe that they would have sat around Bethlehem for two years. I just do. That's, that's my speculation. My guess is that this is months, not years. But regardless, these men traveled a long way and for a long time. And they arrive to worship him, and they do. When they find him, they fell down, which is a symbol, a physical sign of humility. And they worship him. It says, Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. So they bring these gifts, and this is why we think of them as three wise men. Whatever, doesn't really matter, but... They give him three gifts. We know that. But let's think about these gifts. Because I actually think that these gifts are more significant than we, we may think, right? They're not just random gifts. They're intentional. And actually, the gifts themselves tell us the story. It tells us the story of, of the gospel. And each of the guys that preached the last few weeks hit a a different piece of this story. And we're actually going to kind of work our way back, starting with Ray and then to Duane and then to Sam. And it's kind of interesting because gold is a a gift that signifies the kingship of Christ, that he would be the, the ruler and leader. We know that he rules as a shepherd, leads as a shepherd, but he's a shepherd king in the vein of King David. He's the son of David. David was a shepherd and a king. Christ is king and he's shepherd. And this gold, this gift of gold signifies that he is a king. He is worthy to receive this incredibly expensive gift. Gold was incredibly valuable and it still is. Really, gold has never truly lost much of its, uh, its worth. And that was true in the ancient world as it is today. And so here they give gold to this little child to signify his kingship, that he would rule his people and lead his people. Of course, he rules and leads not in a heavy-handed, brutal way like so many of our leaders, but as a shepherd, gentle, and lowly king. But he, he's just turns everything on its head. 
the second gift they give him is frankincense, which um, maybe isn't as familiar to us. Uh, what is this? Well, as the word implies, there's a, there's a word within this, incense, right? And so that's what frankincense is. It's incense that's fragranced, and uh, it, it was, it was signifi- signifying something that I think can get lost on us in translation. And it signifies that Christ is worthy of worship. Frankincense was used uh, as, a, as an object in worship in the ancient world. They'd burn incense. In fact, some, some religious traditions still do this. But it was a significance of Jesus is God, worthy of worship. He's not just any regular old king, right? He, he's not just a king that has political power for the time that he's alive. He's, he is God who is with us. And that's this incense that they give to his family signifies that. And then the third, the third gift is interesting. It's myrrh. And myrrh is another form of a spice, but myrrh's purpose in the ancient world, in the world in which Christ was born into, in the world in which he lived, that myrrh was used as a burial spice. Kind of a weird gift to give a tiny baby, right? But it feels a little morbid maybe even that they would give him a gift that signifies death. We know that myrrh signifies death from the Gospel of John. When Jesus is crucified and he's on the cross and, and his friends, a couple of secret friends of his, Nicodemus and, and uh, Joseph of Arimathea, ask to take the body of Jesus down and give, it a pro- give him a proper burial. Um, but we're told that... Uh, in verse uh, chapter 19, verse 39, it says Nicodemus, who had earlier come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, with the myrrh, as is the burial custom of the Jews. So it's interesting that these guys come come into Christ's presence as a little child, as a few month old, maybe up to a year old child, and they give him gold. That makes sense. Frankincense, you know, they're signifying that they, they want to worship him. That that's, makes sense. But then myrrh, it's like, oh, and by the way, here's some spices for him when he dies. Like, kind of weird, kind of morbid. But it's, it's not when, it, when you see it in the story of Christ's ministry that Jesus Christ was born to die for sinners. That's what Sam talked through with us when he preached, right? That, that Jesus, his name itself means that he will save his people from their sins. But how does he save his people? He saves us through the crucifixion by sacrificing himself as the true lamb of God, by giving his perfect life away to the Father to satisfy the wrath of God so that we can be forgiven of our sins. This is what the myrrh signifies. It represents. Now, how much do these three guys know about all this? It's hard to say. Were these coincidental things that, that we've read into? I don't know, but it's, it's clear that there's no accidents when it comes to Jesus. Right? He, he does all these things intentionally to show us something. But the irony in all of this is this, that the, that the gifts that the wise men give to Jesus 
are really not so much gifts for him as representing the gift of him. The gift that he gives to us in his life and death and resurrection. And, and so often we, we see these verses and we think, okay, here's these guys, they bring their gifts to Jesus and we need to bring our best gifts to Jesus. Do you have any gifts to give to Jesus? Like, really? Like, I, I don't. All I have is filthy rags, the Bible says. We don't have gifts worthy of a king. What this signifies is not that we have to give all of our gifts to him, but that he gives all of himself to us. And that's the message of Christmas. It isn't that we have to be good enough or give enough or do enough for him. It's that he gave himself completely and fully to us. And that truly is what's going to set us free. And also, uh, interestingly, we can then, because he does all this for us, can reciprocate and, and give him our hearts. Right? But, but what comes first, our gift or his? His gift comes first. He comes into our lives. The Bible says that we love because he first loved us. We can't love him or anyone else unless he brings that love first to us. And so these gifts that the wise men bring to Jesus show us that reality of who he is and what he's come to do. And I think for us, we, we need to rest. We need to rest in these, these things. We need to rest in the fact that Jesus is our king which means that we don't have to be in control of all of our circumstances. We don't have to try to make the world what we think it needs to be. We can trust that he is in charge and he is good and perfect. And so whatever he decides to do is right. Which is what Daniel acknowledges in chapter two, right? When he prays, he acknowledges that God sets up kings and takes down kings that God does what he does. And that is true uh, in, in the sphere of geopolitical stuff. And it's as true as it is for you as an individual. That Jesus Christ is your king and he's in control and he knows what he's doing. And so we can trust him. We, we also need to be reminded that he's worthy of our worship, that we should respond to him as, as people who have been transformed by grace and then to give him humility and honor and worship before him. And then above all, we need to remember his death, that he died, that we might live, that he paid the, the debt we owed, that he covers all of it, because 30-some years after these events, he's going to a Roman cross. But it wasn't just some accidental thing that happened. It was predetermined by the Lord that Jesus would die so that sinners could be freed and forgiven from our sins. So let's rejoice in these things. I, I feel like the Christmas story is truly a story of great joy. The Bible tells us it is. It doesn't feel that way all the time. But the reason it can be a, a, a moment of reflection, a, mo a moment in the year in which we stop and think and reflect 
is because it draws us back to the fact that we don't have to control our own destinies. We can humbly submit to him and see him do something amazing because he loves us and came to do all of this for us. So with that said, let me pray for us and then we'll, we'll continue our time in singing and partaking of the Lord's table and giving of our tithes and offerings if you've come with those. So let's pray. Uh, Jesus, we thank you that you are our king, that you are God with us, that you died for our sins. And as we step back in time, thinking about the things that happened 2,000 years from where we are, we need these reminders again. We need them um, to, to see truly who you are again. Would you, by your spirit, open our hearts to, to receive these things and understand them? Would you help us to respond to you with love and faith and joy? And would you give us what we need for the remainder of our day, as a, the remainder of our week, and as we close out a year and begin a new one in the next week, we pray that our eyes would be forward-looking in faith, that you are good and that you are in control. And so whatever may come, may you help us to rest in you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.